Welcome to the Football Union Podcast, the go-to podcast for all things football. Not soccer, it's probably brought to you by the fans, for the fans, and with the fans. Voila! What's up, people? This is Tuesday Talking Points. So basically, we'll be looking at all the talking points from the football world from last Tuesday to this Tuesday. So without further ado, let's dive into it. So Harun, um, yes, welcome, my guy. Welcome. So, so we we'll be talking about a lot of things. But first off, we'd just like to kick off with um, the club scene. So we'll be talking about Manchester United. So mm-hmm. Man- Manchester United has this shortlist that they're looking at in order to hire yeah. their next manager. So we like to break that shortlist down for us. Let's, let's see. Yeah, so there's a there's a five-man shortlist. Um, and those names, I'm, I'm going to list them to you from five to, to, to one, who I think is like the least likely. And uh, number five is Thomas Tuchel. That name is just there just for just for fun, really. It shouldn't really be there anyways. Should that, be, should that be coughing? Uh, if you want to, yeah. Um, but I do know if um, you know some 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 owners for Chelsea come in that's not really looking too exciting. That that could be a solution as well. But we're going to be depending on a few things for that to happen. So Thomas Tuchel is fifth and least likely for me to be Manchester United manager. I think uh, the next one is Julian Lopetegui, and I don't believe he's a target at all. I think he's just uh, a manager they just thrown in the shortlist just to make just to make you know the other managers feel like they're interviewing a lot of people. Uh, so Julian Lopetegui of Sevilla. And number three is Luis Enrique. Um, and Luis Enrique, who is with the Spanish squad now, preparing for the World Cup. So that's a very unlikely deal that could happen um, as well. And number two is uh, Maurizio Pochettino, who's currently managing P- uh, PSG. Uh, they just recently interviewed him, I believe, as well for for the job, and they're just finding out what they can do. There's a 15 million pound release clause as well. So, if United are prepared to pay that for Pochettino, we'll see. And then the number one target, I believe, is uh, Eric Ten Hag, who's at who's at Ajax as well. He's he looks like he's the favourite right now. So those are the five. Okay, okay, okay. So um um uh, before before we carry on um I I have other speakers as well. Call that day. Billy, Casey, and Franklin. So you'll be hearing their voice as the time goes on uh, um, during the episode. But um, there's something I want to talk about. So now you've mentioned five names, but now I'm looking at it this way: like, if there are five names on that short list, does that fill you with enough confidence? Because it seems like there, are, like for example, there are five names on the short list, mm-hmm. but each of those managers have different style of play and philosophy. So yes. it's not like it's not like okay, there are three names. For example, if there were like three names, Ten Hag and um Ten Hag, um um Enrique and Pochettino, you can say all those three managers they are they are like they have similar play style attacking football. Ten Hag and Enrique more so um have um um kind of similar philosophy. But now yeah. there are five names on that list, and those five names have completely different style of play and philosophy. So now does he now, um, uh, because me, I'm looking at it like, do they really know what they're doing 
bringing all these names together. It's just like people just throwing names on there for the sake of it. Like, what, what do you think of that? Well, the way I look at the, um, the shortlist, I think there's only two real serious candidates, um, which is Ten Hag and po- Pochettino. So those two are the only very serious ones that I think that they're going to hire as manager. I believe the other names are just there, just, just because look, when you offer somebody a job, you know, and they're interested, it's all nice. But we all know this, if you linger around with other interviews and you make them think that this job is not a certainty, then they start believing that, you know, um, there's, there's a bit more to it. It's, it. It makes them feel a little bit more on edge. So these names, Lopetegui, for example, he, I don't think he's a serious candidate. In fact, I can guarantee you that he, the interview they gave him is just, is just 30 to 40 minutes of absolute nonsense because he's not going to be the next Manchester United manager. So the shortlist for me is fine. I just think that they're trying to fear of loss the, the, the main candidates into believing that this job is not, is not a guaranteed for anyone. So I'm not, I'm not too um, upset about the shortlist. I'd be happy with Enrique. I'd be happy with um, Ten Hag and Poch. I have my reservations on, but he's still a decent manager. So those three, I'd be happy with. And the rest of them, like I say, they're just there just for um, just to make their numbers up, really. So I wouldn't be too worried about it because yes, their playstyles are different, but um, no, I don't. I, I just think that they're there just to make you think a little bit. Okay, okay. I think it's like, uh, for example, all these negotiation tactics where you yes. don't throw in all your cards there so that like you for example you don't make for example let's say you're in a store you want to get something you don't make it known to the owner that this is exactly what you want to get so that they don't hike up the price so they are basically just trying to max max around what they're trying to do so i get it i get it so in those names like you said i think pochettino and um eric um and ten hard like are more suited in terms of let's say attacking football like you've already rightly ruled out Enrique for his other commitments like with Spain and the World Cup which is coming up later this year but now it brings us down to two names which is Pochettino and Ten Hag so we've seen Manchester United they've have different interviews with all the five candidates but it seems like their main targets here are between these two guys so yeah. do, what do you think between those guys like those names that are mentioned Pochettino and Ten Hag who do you think is most suited for that United manager? Well, my personal preference is Eric Ten Hag um, because he, he has a proven track record of rebuilding teams. Um, we've seen the Ajax team that went to the semi-finals and, you know, they lost five to six very key players to big European clubs. He's rebuilt again. He's made the team good now. Um, he would be my preferred choice. I like his playing style. Um, I like the way, you know, that, he, that his teams are always going out and scoring a lot of goals. Um, and even the people that are influenced in Ajax have said that this type of Ajax football is one of the best that they've seen because it's staying true to the principles. And at the same time, they're getting more goals as well. So it's a lot more exciting for them to watch. So that's the kind of football that I'd like to be seen played at my club because it's been a long time since we've played good football that the fans can enjoy because we've, we've seen defensive football. We've seen counter-attacking football. We've seen... Inshallah, football, every type of football that's not pleasing on the eye, we've seen at the club. So, you forgot to mention Park the Boss football. Park the Boss, yeah, defensive football. Park the Boss, one of the, how can I forget? Um, Jose Mourinho. Um, so, we've seen that type of football before, and I would just like to see a nice, pleasing on the eye 
type of football with you know goals being involved. And of course, at the end of it, seeing sure like, like Xavi ball. Maybe not Xavi ball, more like Pep ball. But uh, but um, Poch, on the other hand, I have very serious uh, reservations. What about Arteta ball? Arteta ball is decent. Yeah, it's decent. I actually don't mind that as well. Arsenal play a very good type of football. Um, you know, um, but Poch, my reservations with him. Um, He's had a Spurs team, and I've said it on this app many times before. He's had a Spurs team that have had the best attack and the best defense in the league, and still don't go out and winning the league. Doesn't make sense to me. He's got a proven history of losing big games, bottling it basically. Um, and you've seen again this season getting knocked out in the French Cup early, getting knocked out by Real Madrid from a hat trick from Karim Benzema, a 16-minute hat trick. You know, team team capitulating. He has pretty much wrapped the league up this season, but he's done so off the back of what probably one of the greatest transfer uh, markets in the history of football of signing Lionel Messi, Donnarumma, you know, um, all these players that they signed and they had a fantastic squad. So I've got huge reservations about him. And mostly the biggest thing for me is the fact that he's he's proven before that he just takes whatever the board give you. So he's a yes man. And with the owners that I have, who are the Glazers, I don't need another yes man at the club. I don't need somebody who's just going to do whatever they say and just and just stick to what you know the, the higher ups say. So I've got reservations about him. He's a good manager. His style of football is actually very good. I actually don't mind his style of football. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, he wouldn't be my preferred choice. I don't, in fact, I'd actually even wait for Enrique if it if it means not getting Poch, uh, if that's the case. All right, all right, all right. So. The next part uh, I want to talk about is something that you and I, um, Harun, we've spoken about um, so many times in our conversations of Clubhouse, and we've argued about this part a lot. So the way I look at it is, Manchester United, the main issue to me, like to me, the, the solving the managerial part is very important, but the main issue to me is they need to get their act together behind the scenes. And what do I mean by that? Like, there's a lot of nepotism, giving people people rules because oh they were club legends and all of that they have affiliations to the club but then all that are nice Barcelona do it too but you need to back nepotism with some kind of logic you need to back it with CV you you need to have that CV there to actually make sure that yes this person is suited to play that role so when I look at Manchester United the structure they have have behind the scenes it's it's not a structure that um actually screams success or actually um, um or it's not a kind of structure that can actually replicate success whenever a manager comes in because we've seen world-class managers come in and fail like Jose Mourinho we've seen them come in fail and now um, um I know you you said this already Ten Hag is your preferred option but even today Louis Van Gaal who is now the Dutch interim Dutch national team coach he said this he was like Henry Ten Hag is a great coach and that is always good for Manchester United. But Manchester United is a commercial club, which a which which is a difficult choice for a coach. He would be better going to a football club. So now looking at that kind of statement from Vahal, who was one of your previous manager, like I, I think I think he has a point there because like I said, the structure behind the scenes doesn't allow the managers to perform. Because they're they not giving the signings they actually want. 
they're not giving the flexibility to get rid of the players that are not playing, even if it's it's a, it gives Manchester United that commercial strength. Then uh, Manchester United are not willing to do that for the managers. They've shown that with the previous track record. They're not willing to do that for the previous managers. So do you think there will be a difference here? Because like I said, if the structure is not right for someone like Eric Ten Hag, I think he will fail because because at the end of the day, it's not a magic show. So like I would just like to hear your two cents on that. Definitely, Eric Ten Hag needs some type of structure around him. So. Um, I actually agree with Van Hal's points about being a commercial club. That's exactly what what they are. Um, but in light of recent changes with Ed Woodward leaving the club, so now he's officially left the club, and we have a new CEO in um, Richard Arnold, and he's previously stated that he wants to now leave footballing matters to footballing people. So that's why signing... Um, Ralph Reinick was a strange decision at the time because it was very out of character for Manchester United to sign him because he actually looks like someone with a plan. Then they gave him the consultancy role, which we believe will be a sort of quote-unquote um, director of football type of role that I believe it will be. So we've got him there, and I believe he's going to be working behind the scenes um, after he finishes his interim job. So that's a footballing brain already. So if you have Ralph Reinick's footballing brain, who's had... Um, Signings like Erling Haaland, you know, under his um, command at Leipzig and Salzburg uh, over there, Erling Haaland, Mane, so many quality players have come through that whole system, that that scouting system that he's created. Even you look at um, Leipzig as well, what he's done there with the kind of players that he's brought in, Danny Olmo and all these players. So he signs players to a certain extent in terms of the the, the stats that they bring and. You know, are they young players? Are they hungry players? Do they want to play for a big club? Do they want to push themselves? And it's completely opposite to what we've had before where we've just signed players because they have social media interactions and they're a big name. So that could happen. And there's another change that could happen as well. So recently, um, you guys probably don't know this, but I think about a month or two months ago, Ralph Ragnick was spotted with a guy called Paul Mitchell um, at under-18's Manchester United game. So for Paul... For, Paul Mitchell, um, if you guys don't know who he is, he was, I believe he was a sort of director of football of Tottenham and Southampton. So he's worked with Posh before. Um, he's responsible for bringing a lot of players into Southampton, um, like Dusan Tadic uh, at Tottenham, Toby Alderweire. So he's brought in a lot of good players for those clubs before. He's got a proven track history as well. He was at Leipzig as well. He's brought in players like um, Nkuku to Leipzig. And now you see what Nkuku is doing out there in World Football. He's one of the best players one of the most exciting prospects as well. So he, he was seen with Paul Mitchell um, uh, under 18's Manchester United game about a month ago. And now what's happened is recently in the past two weeks or so, he's mutually decided to leave Monaco where he's at now. So he could very well come in the next few weeks. We don't know about that 100% yet, but he could come in and then him and Ragnar could be working together. That could be a structural change as well that could come through. Um, but I'm confident in the change happening because what Van Gaal said is true. But that was the past now. So we've moved on from then. And we've got footballing people now in charge of the club. So if you have Ralph Ragnick, potentially a Paul Mitchell, and if Eric Ten Hag then comes, he's going to have two guys that have got a very good sense of football and scouting and, you know, working with what they have. Because people keep saying that Manchester United have not been backed. And yes, that's somewhat true. That is somewhat true. I actually agree with that. But since 2013, Manchester United have spent £1.2 
Man City has spent 1.25 billion. So we've spent a lot of money on players. We just haven't got it right. We just chased the wrong side. So if you give now another 10 years, but you have people in charge who are footballing people, that money is going to be spent a lot more wisely. And you probably don't even need to spend that. You need to spend half that probably, and they'll still find you good players. Um, but that's how I believe about the structure. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That like, like, like you said, like some of the things you said. I didn't, I didn't even probably know them, but uh, you, you guys, you break it down well. And I feel like, I feel like if the, the way you put it, if everything were to play well and they actually get that structure in place, then I feel like the, whichever manager that comes, there is a huge probability that person can be able to succeed, given that they know what they are doing. Because, like, like I said. There is already like a sample size that we can use to see that all the previous managers have failed. And one of the reasons for it is the players, they always fall out with the players. Manchester United ending up siding with the players. Um, the manager don't get the actual targets or profile of players that they want because Manchester United targets players that are good for them commercially instead of the players that are good for them in this in, in, in the um, manager system. So. I feel like, yeah, I feel like they actually put those structures in place there. I feel like they can be successful. Like, you, can, you guys can copy Barcelona. You are the te- Barcelona are the templates for having good structures. <laughs> not, not the previous Barcelona, this new Barcelona, though. So, um, lastly, um, before, before we move on to um, Chelsea, um, I, there's something I just want to talk, talk, touch on. So, we are seeing in the media already that Bruno Fernandes has been offered a five-year deal. So the reason why I'm putting it in the segment is Bruno Fernandes is 20 years old, um, 28 years old. I mean, excuse me, Bruno Fernandes is 28 years old. He he has not had the best of seasons. So don't you think it's a bit premature giving him a contract, given that a new manager is coming? Because the way I look at it is, if a new manager comes and Bruno Fernandes is tied to a five-year contract, even if the manager doesn't like um, Bruno Fernandes, or feels like Bruno Fernandes doesn't fit into his philosophy or style of play, he's now going to be forced to use Bruno Fernandes either way because Bruno Fernandes is tied to a long term contract. So I'm looking at it like Manchester United are looking at it like, oh, Bruno Fernandes is one of our main players. And I'm, most times, the way clubs do it is their main players, they offer them contracts regardless of the manager's um, choice or whatever because yeah. they feel like he's going to be there for a long time. But I'm looking at it like, if Manchester United are going to this part of trying to build something new, will it not be in their best interest to actually wait and see if Ten Hag or Poch or whoever they get come summer wants um, Bruno to be part of his plans? For me, uh, initially it was a bit strange. I was thinking, what's, what's going on? Because he's, I, I think he's still got three years left on his contract. But the only thing that I can rationale is the fact that They've spoken, they actually know who the next manager is going to be. That's what I think, first and foremost. And they've probably asked him your feelings on Bruno Fernandes. And he's probably said, I like him and I would use him in my system. That's the only thing that could make sense of, of the whole situation. Uh, but also, we have been speaking with Bruno for a new contract for about a year or so. But uh, m- my thinking is they they know who the next manager is going to be. They're just waiting it out um, for the right moment to drop who the manager is. And he's already given his green light to the fact that he likes Bruno Fernandes. Because people say Bruno hasn't had a good season. And yes, that's somewhat true to... But he's still got a lot of goals. He's still got a lot of assists this season. And he's still performing in terms of 
what he brings because Bruno only brings numbers. You know, everybody knows this, but his numbers are still a lot better than eighty percent of players out there uh, in the world. So I think yeah, the next manager has probably said, "I like Bruno. I'm going to use him in my system." That's the only thing that makes sense. Um, but we are losing a lot of players. Uh, Cavani's leaving. Jesse Lingard's leaving. So a lot of players are leaving. Um, Pogba as well. So a lot of money and wages will be completely gone. So giving him a pay increase is not really too much of a big deal because we're because we're also saving a lot as well at the same time. I don't mind it as well. By the way, I actually like Bruno. I think if the new manager comes in with a structure, with a plan, that he could change and alter his game um, to suit to suit the system. That's what I think. No, okay, okay, okay. I actually think what what you said makes more sense. I think they already, like you said, they already know the targets. The next man, the, the next person that was going to be Manchester United manager, they probably spoken or um or the Bruno Fernandez situation. So I think I think yeah, I think that that's what makes sense because. I actually find it strange how handing a contract to someone that uh, that we've seen that has had uh, not the best of season, and you know. Yeah, because because otherwise you would just wait two three months to offer him a new deal. It's not it's exactly. Not yeah, exactly, exactly, <clears throat> exactly. All right, cheers, Arun. Um, so moving on, uh, we're talking about Chelsea now. Um, we all know the situation at Chelsea. Them having so many issues off the pitch. They've been very very good on the pitch, but they've been having so many issues off the pitch. But the things we'll be looking at are the, some of the new updates that we're seeing from Chelsea. So um, the, the, um, they've actually allowed Chelsea now to be able to um, sell tickets in some games. But before then, before we go into that, I, I just want to quickly touch on uh, um, Chelsea now being, being able to receive um, £30 million cash injection from Abramovich because I think Chelsea's, day to, uh, Chelsea's monthly... Um, date their activity cost about I think 28 million pounds to actually run their day-to-day -day, um, activity for a full month. So, Hunter, what do you think about that? Like, is that like in a like is, is it looking like there's a light finally shining at the end of the tunnel because now Abramovich can now put in that 30 million pounds to actually make sure that the club still functions as as best as it can. I don't know what to say about the decision for them to give Chelsea an operating license to allow uh, the parent company called uh, Fordstrom to put in uh, 30 million into um, Chelsea Football Club. Um, although I know that uh, there's been negotiations that have been going on with um, the board of directors at Chelsea and uh, the government for the last two weeks. Uh, so that they can be able to amend the license to allow um, them to get funding from the parent company. Um, but the thing is that uh, the idea is to keep Chelsea floating. And I just tell this to one of my mates that there could be a couple of possibilities um, with the situation that is happening off the pitch. Um, I know the government is making sure that um, Chelsea doesn't go into administration because uh, going to administration would lead to a points deduction. And us going into administration will not be because we are being mismanaged. It's because they prevented us from actually making money. Um, but them giving us money is uh, allowing us to get money from the parent company is, is just a testament to um, 
the fact that, like you mentioned, rightly mentioned, there is light in the end of the tunnel. And the idea is to allow Chelsea to still be able to run and function and allow the manager to actually finish the uh, Premier League campaign before the club is sold. Um, but I'm happy with that decision. Um, I know the board is still going to fight for that to um, enable um, that license to be amended even further. Um, because at the moment, what that license can also allow us to do is allow Chelsea fans to purchase um, tickets to the last uh, four clashes uh, in the FA Cup game. And that's Crystal Palace. I think it's taking place on the um, 15th and 16th, I believe. Um, the next, the, the next FA Cup game, though, they're going to allow Chelsea fans to purchase tickets for that. Um, outside of that, they would also allow Chelsea fans to um, purchase the quarterfinal or allow the Chelsea fans to be able to watch the quarterfinal games against um, uh, Real Madrid, which is taking place on the 6th and the 12th. Um, what they cannot do with the current license that they've given Chelsea is they cannot sell home tickets for the rest of the season. Um, so at the moment, because um, they've already sold out like tickets to um, Chelsea fans before the uh, sanction took place, um, I think the capacity is going to be around 30,000 uh, up to the end of the season. And if you think about it, uh, Chelsea's capacity is up to 41,000, just over 41,000. Um, so that's the situation we find ourselves in at the moment in terms of uh, that money that has been received and the fact that that license has been amended. Okay, okay, okay. Thank you, Franklin. But like the whole idea of this thing, the whole sanctioning and uh, all the limitation, limitations that they try to um, put on Chelsea is that they, they try to make sure that Chelsea don't make too much money and if Chelsea don't money is not leaving the club so that they cannot loan that money to fund whatever is happening with the team. That's all my own idea of reading into it. But now, I'm feeling like there's, there's an agenda in it. Like, there's, an, there's this hypocrisy now. For example, you mentioned that they'll be allowed to sell tickets in FA Cup games. And where are those FA Cup games going to take place? I think we all know where it's taking place, Wembley. Because I feel like, I feel like them, giving that license, they are trying to and facilitate their own benefits. Like, I don't know if, you, so, so, so they're facilitating their own benefits. Now they're not, they're not using the Champions League as a smokescreen. Yeah, since, since we are allowing um, this happen in the FA Cup, we allow it happen in the, um, what's it called, the Champions League game. But why not allow it happen in the league games? Because to me, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, you know what? With, with, you are definitely right that um, there is. Um, some level of agenda there because um, I think uh, in terms of the FA Cup um, games, any proceeds that they make would go to the FA um, and with Champions League too as well, proceeds goes to UEFA but any other tickets that have been sold to Chelsea fans not relating to those games so maybe because I think um, that um, license allows uh, tickets to be sold to away fans. Um, they said they would donate that to uh, charity. So 
the idea at the end of the day is to ensure that any money that is being made doesn't go back to roaming. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I, I'm, I'm just, I just want the club to be sold as quickly as possible. That's my own concern as a Chelsea fan. So that um, we can just get on with our lives and get on with football. Because uh, on the pitch, Chelsea is uh, performing. Um, off the pitch, it's just a distraction. The fact that Chelsea is still able to perform with all the distractions is just a testament to um, what Chelsea is about. And that is partly to do with the owner they've actually put sanction on, Roman Abramovich. And possibly we could give some credit to uh, Mourinho because he was part of uh, the building blocks of uh, the new Chelsea. Mm, okay, all right, fair enough. But, but, but um, just quickly on Roman, um, we're seeing that um, there's been negotiations. Um, this one is concerning the Ukraine, what is the war happening in Ukraine. So we seen that Abramovich is trying to facilitate a peace talk mm -hmm. between both, both nations. Do you think like this will actually look, the UK government can now be lenient with Abramovich in concerning what was seen um, behind the scenes in, um, in what's going on in Ukraine? You know, you know what it is. So there are different angles. You can you can look at it from different spectrums with regards to that negotiation um, that he's is involved with. Um, I know he um, people will say that he's doing it because of uh, his assets. He's trying to protect his assets. Um, but I think um, if people are aware, he also has good relations relations with uh, Ukraine as well. So anything that happens to Ukraine affects him too as well. So I don't know why people think that, oh, he's just doing it just to protect his assets. Well, people can run that agenda if they, if they feel like. Um, with regards to the UK government, it's funny to me that, and this is why in the beginning I chuckled a bit, that they would allow the parent company to put in an additional 30 million into Chelsea, and they are saying, oh, by the way, when Chelsea is sold, they have to make sure and guarantee that uh, he does not um, get a penny from the proceeds. It's 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 just funny to me how the UK government works sometimes. They'll collect money from all these Russian billionaires, uh, Saudi billionaires, and on the other hand, they want to eat the, they, they want to keep the money for themselves. So it's they effect, effectively eat their cake and have it. It doesn't make any sense to me. But I know in the past. Uh, Abramovich has sued the UK government uh, with regards to other issues and he won. Um, I think that this whole issue of Abramovich not getting a penny from this proceeds is going to drag out. What they are just going to try and do at this point in time is to ensure that that sales goes through and um, Billy and Colado, you can help me out in, in this. That proceeds would actually go to like an escrow account where that money will be kept until they decide to do whatever they want to do with it. Because if you think about it, um, it was Abramovich that actually employed Rain Group that is uh, overseeing the sale of the club. So I'll, I'll just have to wait and see. I know that the UK government is not going to succeed in ensuring that 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 Abramovich doesn't get a penny from that, those proceeds it's impossible 
you can't tell me that you have three billion uh, pounds and you're saying that you don't get any penny. That's crazy to me. It, it can't happen. It can't happen, but we'll see. I'll sit down and watch on the eating my popcorn. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see what happens at the end of the day. But um, let's let's go back to the Chelsea sale. So um, this evening, they've already been reports that um, the Ring Group, they've already have their shortlist ready to see who will become the Chelsea, the Chelsea owner. But um, there's, now, there's now a duration. So they are saying on, on the week of April the 18th, Chelsea might have their new owner ready and uh, could have, um, Chelsea could have been taking, um, Chelsea could have already had the new owner ready. But what I just want to highlight is before we, we got to this position, we've seen a lot of names dropped out from the shortlist already. So me, I'm, I'm looking at it like this. Those names that were chopped off from the um, screening processes, um, Franklin, are you not feeling hard done by like there's an agenda here because like there's a, the hypocrisy was saying that these names that usually they could have allowed, like let's say six months ago, there are people, the Arabs, the, uh, um, the Saudi Arabians, the, the, the Arab billionaires and all of that, that they're allowed to purchase Newcastle. Now they're chopping them off the list. Like, do you think that some of the, the, um, the criteria to be on that screen, um, and to, 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 to be on that short list, they were they increased the level now that it's gotten to Chelsea's own turn to get a billionaire now. To um, I wouldn't say it's an agenda because um, so w one name that sticks out that actually dropped out of the list is um, a Chelsea fan uh, by the name of uh, Mohamed Al Kerigi. Hope I didn't butcher that name. Um, and they put in a bid of about uh, two point uh, seven billion. Um, the thing is that this this guy is uh, a Saudi business person who runs the um, the uh, Saudi media group. Um, he's also a CEO of a parent company called uh, Engineering Holding Group, which was actually founded by his own father. Uh, um, he also studied in the UK uh, business school. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Cast Business School. That's where he studied. Um, he spent about three years working in uh, Deutsche Bank. So uh, clearly, this guy is legit. Um, now, the thing is, uh, with this guy, his net worth can't really be determined. And um, the concerns that they had about the consortium that he was uh, running is that they cannot be able to prove the independence of that consortium from the Saudi state. And if you think about it, this is the same issue that uh, the Newcastle owners uh, experienced. That's why there was a delay of uh, the sale of Newcastle. Uh, I think it took about like 18 months before that sale had to go through um, because of the uh, hoops that they had to jump. So if you think about it, they would have to scrutinize this guy and the consortium and the relationship that he has with the Saudi state. That's whether there is a relationship that exists or that don't exist. But that would then take a very, very, very long time. It cannot be done within a month or within the time period or time frame that Chelsea needs the club to be sold. So I won't say it's an agenda. 
I'll just say it's unfortunate that um, he he was interested in the club at the wrong time. Um, if he had more time, he probably wouldn't have been brought forth to waste. Um, but because of the scrutiny that they 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 are now applying to a lot of these new owners, and when you hear there's this new term that I just learned about um, uh, sports washing, um, they are concerned that that might also be the case. So um, I won't say it's an agenda, but that's the name that actually sticks out. There's this other uh, Turkish billionaire I can't remember his name that was also interesting, but hey, you don't want to turn Chelsea to a kebab shop. Is what it is. <laughs> all right, all right. So, like, basically, it's just that um, wrong, um, right? Good opportunity for Chelsea, but wrong timing for the for the um, um the the Saudi yeah, guys. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, okay. Just la last question. So now, on Sky Sport, they are saying the time frame for for not for that Chelsea get a new owner is from now to. Um, April the 18th, so the week of April the 18th, so basically just to have a new one But do you, do you actually see that as a realistic time frame? Do you think it could be possible for Chelsea to have a new one by then? No, I don't think it's a realistic time frame. Um, I, I don't I don't think it's a realistic time frame. I, I'm, I'm thinking probably end of April, towards the end of May. And if it goes beyond April, um, they might ask... Um, Abramovich to inject another 30 million into the club, which will also be laughable and funny because they've already asked him to inject 30 million currently. Um, but I would say end of uh, April, uh, and that's because um, the guys that are currently in the running, um, they look sort of legit. They have, they already have a track record um, about their previous business, and we can go through some of the names. You have them. Um, Todd Bowley, who is the owner of uh, LA Dodgers, um, it's a baseball team in, in America. Uh, you have um, Josh Harris, um, also a Chelsea fan, I believe. Um, property developer too as well. I, I think they said he's worth about just under five billion. Um, and then you have uh, David Blitzer, and Vivek uh, Ranade, uh, who owns uh, Sacramento Kings. And these guys are also part of a consortium. So that is just Harris, David, and Vivek. Um, they are part of a consortium that would involve um, a guy called uh, Sam Martin, um, Broughton, and uh, Sebastian Cole, who is also a Chelsea fan. Um, but it looks like because of the price tag on Chelsea, a lot of people are having to form consortiums just so that they can be able to purchase Chelsea Football Club, um, but it looks like it's it's a it's a very good brand and a very good uh, product for people to invest in. If not, you won't have this amount of attraction to the club and the amount of interest that you have. Uh, the last uh, person I wanted to mention that's on that list is the Ricketts family. Um, uh, but there's been issues uh, with them. Um, purely because of uh, their association with uh, Trump um, and the fact that uh, the father, uh, his name is Joe Ricketts, three years ago made some Islamophobic uh, comments. Um, and I think it was uh, in an email exchange um, and um, 
if 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 I were to don't quote me directly, but the the email was about uh, him saying Muslims are naturally um, enemies. Um, so naturally, his enemies, and due to their deep um, antagonistic and uh, bias against uh, non-Muslims, um, they will continue to be his enemies. Um, but he later apologized for it for that comment which he made, uh, and they're saying that uh, Joe is not actually part of this um, this uh, this beat that they're making by the Ricketts family. Um, they the one of the teams that they own, which is a baseball team, uh, won the World Series back in 2015. So they do have a track record of uh, managing teams and making them successful and winning championships. So, but those are the the the, the finalists that I'm aware of. Um, I I do know that sometimes the person that eventually buys the club, usually we don't we don't really know much about them. Um, but listen, at the end of the day, I just want the club to be sold and I just want to move on to football things as opposed to geopolitical things. All right, thank you very much, Hunter. That was very nice. You, you took all the questions I have and squeezed them up and delivered in one, in one quick take. Thank you very much. Um, I aim but, to please. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> No problem. Hopefully, like your target today on like your striker Lukaku. Hey, no see, problem. We we'll talk about you, that. If you see, if you see my, my DP, you know that I am always on target. Like I have. <laughs> exactly. Team Kai on, on Flick. Yeah. So but basically, it is all about ethics. I don't. I think the Ricket family needs to leave there because we've seen some of the criticisms Abramovich has received because of his association with the different teams. So if the Ricket family is that. It's still on that list, and if they eventually buy it, I think there will be a massive um, um, outburst. There might be a protest at Stamford Bridge soon. So, um, moving on, um, let's just quickly talk about Barcelona before we go into the international scene. So, um, um, so Barcelona, we've seen Barcelona have some um, transfer activities. It's not even summer yet. Barcelona are having transfer activities. So, Barcelona right now, they are, they are look poised to sign Christensen from Chelsea. But the one I want to talk about is, um, what is his name? Frank Kessie. Frank Kessie has been confirmed that, like there's a confirmation that he has actually done a medical and is set to leave AC Milan and join the Blaugranas. So I'm looking at it like this. Barcelona have a lot of midfielders. So where does Frank Kessie fit in this picture, Claudio? Um, hi, Leonard. Yes, so the Francesia signing is, uh, I'll say, it's a very huge signing. We've seen what um, having a different of midfielders from the Barcelona historically. Um, the most recent one being um, Polio. Polio, and before that, there was Gator, right? Players that, that, that bust into the box, basically, that's what they do. But they, they arrive at the box on the right side, which is what um, I see fit. Um, a lot of Barcelona fans seem to think that it's going to be a defensive player, but um, I think it's going to be more of a attacking mid because the basic tenet of Barcelona's midfield, which is uh, not just passing on the ball but being um, breaking through the line, is not one of his strengths, right? Um, I think the KCA deal is, is is cheap, relatively cheap. 
right? I mean, a free transfer for that kind of player. He was one of the best players in the French in this um, Syria last season. Even though he had a little bit of a down on the season this year because of because of uh, uh, the transfer saga that's been constructed. I mean, the fans booing him in the stadium sometimes. Yeah, so he has, he has had, a, had a good time with the, um, the transfer issue. But since when it has been said to that he has so he's coming back to Barcelona, his, um, his performance on the pitch has also increased. He shows he's still at that level. And if you watch the game against uh, France, right, he played against some of the best midfielders in the world. And he was most loud. He was most proper on the pitch. He showed what he could do. Um, as for his impact on the Barcelona midfield, I think he's going to be a rotational player. I think he's going to be a rotation up here. Sometimes he's going to play from Gabi. Sometimes Gabi will play. And um, Frankie, Frankie also is going to rotate with Frankie. I think the only short bit for the midfield position going into next season is going to be Sergio Busquets and Pedri. Why that top spot is going to be up for grabs. And sometimes I'm very sure the young players are a defensive midfielder. Right? And um, Kessie will have a spot as well as the interior in the field. Um, and um, I went through some of the stats when um, I saw the transfer, and I noticed that he has his best match performances um, as an attacking mid over his career at um, Milan. I think he has, he has okay, he has um, averaged like six points, seven rating in um, every part of the midfield, but in the uh, the attacking mid position, he has averaged seven points. But that's a significant jump. That's like a zero point seven increase in performance when he plays closer to the keeper. I know the um I think last year he had 13 goals from midfield, which is a good return. They put um a good penalty taker and we don't have an establishment for him. So I think it's a good addition for free and for a salary of six to six million a year. I think it's a good addition. It's going to bring an extra extra you are going to bring something different to midfield. All in all I'm up with Okay. Um, so um, the, like 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 you said, like basically he's going to he's going to be a kind of a squad player and he can fit into different roles and he's not basically the normal profile passer he's used to definitely, but he can start he's flexible and he can adapt tactically. So but I'm looking at this like there's a, there's this hypocrisy that goes around in football. So Barcelona were angry at Usman Dembele. For not signing a contract, for not taking pay cuts, and for for having maybe having some kind of pre-contract um, agreements with other clubs behind the scenes, but Barcelona went on to do the same thing with Kessie. So like 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 do you do you, do you not see like what the like for example the AC Milan fans and even the Milan board? Do you not think that they will be looking at Barcelona some type of way like you're angry? About something, and basically, you're almost doing the same thing. Yeah, so um, situations are different, right? Um, I get what you're saying, I get where you're coming from, but the situation is completely different, right? Jesse communicated his um, feelings to the board, to the Milan board, that he won't be resigning. He won't be resigning his contract with the Milan contract, right? On the other hand, what Usman Dembele and his agent did, right, was they accepted a contract from after they accepted the contract with Barcelona, right? When it, the Barcelona went ahead to sign Ferran Torres and um, um, 
Ferran Torres and I think Daniel Alves. Right? When the time came to play, Guzman Dembele to sign that contract. Dembele knew that him signing that him signing that contract and um Barcelona being able to register Ferran Torres and Daniel Alves were dependent on him signing that contract. So he used it as a leverage to say, okay, he's not going with this contract anymore. That he wants a renewal. He wants an higher salary. Right? So Barcelona were boxed into a corner concerning the contract signing. That was what that's the reason why Barcelona were very infuriated with them Because they had to change their entire plan in the winter. I know the inter window is a very short one. That was what led to them having to do it um, increase Umtiti's contract to five years and making some, some decisions that they won't have made. Right? So I think the situation are very, very different different in the sense that one of them acted in bad faith. Why the other committed his intention directly to the government? Well, it sounds to me like Barcelona is uh, saying, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. If I was the one in Barcelona, I would be very, very happy Well, personally, I'm not angry with Barcelona. Some people might say, um, yes, because I have my allegiance to them, but truthfully, for every club in Europe does this. They only care about their own best interest. So um, um, there's something I, um, also that we, um, Barcelona are trying to do. So we're seeing them, they are, they are going on this spree of signing um, free agents. So the next one on their list is Mazuari. So now Mazuari is on the works. We all know Mazuari is left, um, right back, sorry. We, um, there's already setting your desk there, and there's talks of Daniel Ves signing a one-year extension of Barcelona. So if Barcelona were to get Mazuari, for for free, of course. Do you think like there's an there, there will be like a situation where there's an overbooking in a particular situation, or is it a case of where they convert um Sergio Des to left back, or they sell Sergio Des to a club like Chelsea, who was previously interested in in his um, in his um, services? I think uh, Barcelona already made up their mind to sell Sergio Des decision has been made since the winter, and I think they will stick by that decision because the real sense says, you know, just can get us 30 million or odd with add-ons, right? And we could get a player that is arguably just as good as Mazraoui. Get a player who is just as good as Mazraoui or cheaper, right? For, for, not even cheaper, but basically nothing, right? On, and they'll be on the contrary. So it's a good piece. It's going to be a good piece of business for Barcelona if they can sell him. I think they should sell him. So I want them to renew Daniel Alves, not for the falling aspect, but for him to the dressing room. The joy and the uh, leadership he transmits to the, the the dressing room is um not something you can buy, right? It's not something you can buy. He's a good mentor to those players. Seeing someone that has actually done it at, the, at a big club like Barcelona, or Barcelona. So I think Daniel Alves is great. The one I'm questioning is the Aspilicueta signing. I don't think it's necessary signing anymore. If you are getting Mazra, Daniel Alves, then I don't think Mazra, I don't think Aspilicueta um, is a necessary signing. But I won't mind them signing him, signing him, right? But I don't think it's a necessary signing. Yes. Okay. So okay, but before moving from this um, situation, now you mentioned Aspilicueta. But do you now think, um, okay, let, let's let's look at Masuari. Do you think he's a better upgrade than what Barcelona currently have in terms of right back um, personnel? Yeah, I try. I actually very much believe that, right? Because 
I, I watched with Masrawi and um, this. Yeah, I actually. And Masrawi was always the first option. He's the better player in the attacking team of the year, right? And he's even a better defensive defender in terms of um, the area drills and then the start He's better than this. He was always the first option. But the only problem with Masrawi, which is the only caveat I have to us, Barcelona fans, is the fact that he's always injured. He's always injured. This man has never played more than, I don't think he has played more than 20 games this season since his breakout season. He has always had lower than 20 games this season, right? Which is the biggest issue I have with him. And that was the reason why Barcelona went to buy his back. His back, he said, you know, this last summer. Masrawi was always the better player between the two, even while they were in Ajax. But the problem was that he was always injured. And that was what even gave said, you know, this, the opportunity to start games for Ajax last season. So I think it's an upgrade in terms of their ability to hold the pitch. But it's just a question of can they stay healthy? If they can stay healthy, then it's definitely going to be Barcelona's first job, first job right back in no time. Yes. Okay, so now you mentioned injuries. Now let's look at this this way. So you mentioned Aspiqueta. So I'll I'll throw an interesting stat for you. So Aspiqueta, the longest he has been out is 20. He missed 29 games. That was for uh, Marseille. He, he fractured his ligament. So he ruptured his, his, um, his ligament. So I'm looking at it like Aspiqueta is someone that is always fit, dependable, reliable, and he can play across the back line, center back. Left back, right back, anywhere you need him to play, he will give you a seven, or seven over ten. So I'm looking at it like you mentioning Masuari. Yes, I think looking at Masuari's stats in terms of injury in history, he always have this where he goes, miss three games, he miss another three games, he miss one, he miss four. I think the longest he has been out is 15 games where he actually had a eye problem. So I'm looking at it like maybe Barcelona is looking to bring in someone like Aspiqueta. So that because we've seen Barcelona struggled a lot in terms of injury this season, so they're looking at it like let's bring in Aspiqueta who can play across the back line and can or that is always fit and dependable. Because for Chelsea, for Chelsea, I'll, I'll tell you this now Aspiqueta, I'm looking at it now from um, transfer market. Aspiqueta has missed just um, eight games for Chelsea's um, in, in, in since like 2000. 1920. So, like, if you look at it, his injury record is very, very good. So, what do you think about that? Like, is this something that Barcelona are considering, or, or is something that you're looking like might be a problem because you don't really know where Aspiqueta will fit into the team? Um, I'm looking at it now. Now, I get what you're saying, and I see what you're saying. But when I look at it, and I see what um, Arujo can do as right back. Like I said in my first um the first time I spoke, I do not mind the signing at all. I do not mind Barcelona signing at all. But, uh, but left to me, I would think um, if we need salary space, which we which we need currently, I think going into next season, Mazurawi, Arojo, and um, um Daniel Best can do the job. Left to me, I think those three can do the job for a season. And if um, January comes. We see that we are still very, we are still very short in that position. We can always get a leg shift right, we right back to the academy or something. But I don't think that should be a necessity to play, considering our current issues with uh, the wage structure. 
All right, all right, fair enough. And so moving on, um, we think Barcelona already planning life after Dembele. So Barcelona have been in contact with Rafinha and his agency, Deco. Um, Deco. So they've um, seen from various reports that Rafinha has agreed a five-year deal with Barcelona and he has agreed to the salary or the um, salary um, offer from Barcelona. So um, the only issue here is Rafinha has two clauses. One is 70 million clause and a 25 million um, clause as well. So they're looking at it like if Rafinha was to relegate with Leeds, then the clause drops down to 25 million. But if Rafinha and Leeds stay up in the Premier League, then Barcelona would have to pay that 70 million. So do you think, uh, what, 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 what do you think about this situation? Because I find it funny that Barcelona is relying on because if you look at it, they are playing the waiting game now. They are trying to rely on uh, on Rafinha getting relegated. Obviously, Barcelona, I think, will try to submit a bid, but I don't think Leeds will accept it because they know that they have more to gain if if they hold on to their assets and eventually they stay up in the Premier League. Um, I'm very sure Barcelona is not the it's not depending on relegation, they will negotiate. I think they will sit down with Leeds United and negotiate with probably a 40 to 50 million deal for um for Rafia and try to find the payments from the networks, just like Ferran Torres. I don't think Leeds will get relegated, and I think Barcelona are looking at that and seeing that, oh no, the, according to what the table is saying, the most likely will go through. I don't think Barcelona is sitting on their laurels thinking about um, relegation for Leeds. The clause says 75 million release clause. It doesn't say that the amount you, have, you can still negotiate. And I think Barcelona will negotiate with United. But one thing I can say is that Barcelona will not pay that 75 million. At most, they will pay 50 million or 40 million plus adults. But I know they will not play the 75 million. No cap. Okay. Okay. So, lastly, on Barcelona, we saw um, their president, John Laporta, um, come on to the media to give. A very very detailed interview. So, but the reason why I'm adding it here is like there are some undertones to some of the things he said. Basically, the full load down on the interview was Barcelona won't do anything financially that will put the club at risk. And I feel like he's talking to four players here. He's talking to Haaland, who we all know that Barcelona has been chasing for quite some time now. I think he's also talking to Dembele, who we know that. Is asking for something and he doesn't want to take a pay cut. He's asking for something that's actually worth his own value in his eyes. Then he's now talking to Araujo and Gabi, who are some of the young players coming through and they are actually currently negotiating a contract extension with them. So, do you think that, like, a, like Laporta doing that interview was like a direct message to those players? And do you think they're actually that? Do you think that he? So we get the message, or do you think that Laporta is like going out of his way to to do some certain things that are out of character? Like I don't understand what he was trying to do there, but if you could break it up and uh, break it down for us, like uh, we appreciate that and call it. Um, I don't think um, I don't think Laporta is doing anything out of character. Laporta is only doing a drama for his king. It creates drama. It creates drama. And um, what's the word? Um, born while he plays in drama. <laughs> Literally, what he was, what is the word born? 
I know the Spanish press. Once you feed them a bone, they will crunch it until there's nothing on it, right? Anyway, so um, concerning the message you send, a lot of people send the message to Arojo and Gavi. I think the club is well aware that those two will stay. The club is well aware that those two will definitely stay. Um, so I don't think they just send any message to them. I think the major message is sending is to the Alan camp. The offer you have on the table is our final offer. Pick what you want to pick. I think that is what he's saying. And at the same time, he's um, sending a message to the fans that there's a possibility we might not get Alan. You know, the problem now is that Laporta has gone online, he has gone on media to say a lot of things about Alan. He has spread the optimism that he's going to spy Alan. And he did that mostly because he was finding a way to um, compensate for losing Lionel Messi, right? But I think for him now, it's turning on him now that the possibility of signing Alan might not be that strong, considering what the other clubs have offered as salary and position for his parents, right? So I think he's seen reality that the only reason why Alan is selected back was because of the sporting project. So he's putting it out there that this is all we have, right? Is it that you take it? You are not willing to negotiate. And at the same time, he's putting down the expectation of the fans and telling them that there's a possibility we will not get him. And the reason why I will not get him is because I'm fighting for the club. So I think that's basically what he's trying to do. But for Dembele, I think um, the club is very clear on the position Dembele currently has right now. They know that Dembele has negotiated with other clubs. And they know that if Dembele wants to come back to the table, he needs to accept the offer that was given to him in the first place. I think there's no reason, there's no message to be sent when he's as clear. All right, all right. Thank you very much, Kolade. And we, I think, I think that, that would be all for Barcelona. So we click, quickly move to the international team so that we end the episode. So, Billy, um, um, the, Af- yes, um, Africa quali- the Africa qualifiers was up, some interesting dramas on and off the pitch, but we start with Cameroon. So, what, yes. what, what kind of, what do you make of the performance we saw against um, um, Algeria? At, at, so, like, do you, do you think that, that was the performance that we like, that, like, um, that you needed to see from Cameroon? Or like a reaction that you get to see from Cameroon having been knocked out from the Afcon and finishing third in um, last month's um, Afcon. Like, do you think were you impressed by what you saw by um, of Cameroon against Algeria? You you're asking a very uh, you know you know how to look at the face he's asking. Cameroon lost one nil to Algeria at home, and he's asking me some questions. Leonard, you are you you know how to take it man. No, of course I'm not impressed. Of course, I'm not impressed by that, man. Um, look, listen to me. Um, I said this before the fixture. As much as Algeria had a terrible, terrible Afcon performance, they're still the Algeria that won the 2019 Afcon, so they're to be feared. And I knew that they would come back with some sort of vengeance, right? Because I don't see them wanting to lose out on that Afcon. Um, I was very disappointed by what I saw with Cameroon. I think, you know, in the final third, we just were not the best. Um, but also, we just looked all over the place, honestly. Um, you know, later in the game, it can be who, which is always our best threat, and I, and, I, and I love that player. You've heard me speak about him. I know he had a very good shot, but outside of that, we really didn't have any single shot uh, or any single true chance. And Algeria proved very, very resolute in their defense and their unit that we couldn't get past them. So, um, Abu Bakar, obviously, 
going out and injury at halftime was a bit of a was a bit of a loss to say the least. Um, and the Slimani goal, I mean, this guy scores every time for Algeria. I think Onana could have done a bit better. You know, there's there's, there's something to be said there, but it's really a solid Algerian team that we couldn't break down. And unfortunately, you know, we'll have to see what happens in the second leg, but I don't see us going in their ground tomorrow uh, and getting a result. I mean, it would be wonderful if we could. I'll be very, very stressed for that for that match and for that fixture. But, um, yeah, it was very disappointing to see us in Douala not be able to show up anything for our fans. So, you know, fingers crossed we do something. I think another loss is on Vita in that midfield because we did look a bit all over the place. But really, I mean, big, big, big uh, shout-out to Algeria for having kept that resolute defense. You know, kept the structure. I think that's what helped them a lot during this picture. You know, personally, Haram football always in competitions like this. But I, I just need to ask, like, is Cameroon uh, your man, not money This the win. I want to ask, Cameroon team their management and everything. Do you think they got backed in some kind of way to to this um, to um, um, show um, like we think that backed to Cameroon being this um, um, all over the place, like having such a um, Tory time against Algeria. Do you think that they have impact to play in that aspect? Um, I think yes and no. Obviously, I kind of question them changing managers after they had established a team with, with, with this much structure, right? I think that the current team had settled itself already. Um, as much as I was disappointed with the game against uh, Egypt, I think we were pretty, we had a pretty good uh, spirit during this halftime. And that's saying a lot, you know, continuing on from our form from 2019, where I thought we were just all over the place. Um, so it probably did. I don't really understand that decision. Um, this is a team that was obviously established. The same players that the last manager picked, um, and you know, uh, I, I know that it was a disappointing loss. And you know, Cristiano, you know, he he had the KPIs he had to reach, but doing that right before qualifying in terms of style, it was just the same manager that got us to this place, right? With the win versus Ivory Coast, I kind of questioned that decision. So it probably did create some sort of, I don't know, what you want to call it. Breakup, but I don't think it was to the extent which is why we lost. I think we just lost a better team. Um, and you know, the players will have to figure up together. The Gabel song was obviously a Cameroonian legend. Um, you know, he actually did have a stint as a as a previous manager. Um, what's it called? He used he he managed um, our team in you know 2017, right before. Qualifying for that Zafon. So um, we were um, so I don't know. It was a, it was a Cameroon. Um, just to be clear, though, sorry, I, 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 I was um, speaking of I was saying it was a Cameroon A team, which is essentially more the regional team, and you know the African Nations Championship, which is for teams that are teams of players that play in Africa. In the, in the local league. So he led them to that competition we were for there. So, um, caretaker role for our team a bit later on. And, um, you know, U23 Nations uh, Cup. And now he's back. So, he will have a job to do. I think there's a lot. If we don't 
look at this World Cup, there's going to be a lot of eyes on him, right? But uh, I just want to see us do more. I want to see us have an identity because it's been a while. He knows exactly. He knows about that identity, so maybe he can bring it in because he he was part of a team that led us to multiple Afcons, right? He was part of a team. He's one of the Olympics. You know, he was our captain before as well, so he knows a lot of, of what it means to represent this badge. So hopefully that transpires into how he, he leads this team and who he picks. But it'll be tough. It's never easy as a, as we're all um, Africans here. It's never easy leading a an African nation, especially when it's in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Not trying to stir the pot in any way, but we know exactly what that means. Um, and, and sometimes I think when we hire folks who are from our country, there's even more scrutiny put on them. And I'll stop there before anyone you know, starts to, 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 to get at me. But yes. I was tempted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, because quickly, because of time, because I would like to wrap up if possible, two minutes. But like um, um, we saw um, um, Senegal, um, the current African champion, um, mm. dropped um, losing at home to um, no um, going. I think I think they were away to Egypt. Yeah, yeah, they were away. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. So Egypt uh, are currently on on the front um, front feet. Do you, do you do you think that is way back for Senegal in this one? Um, I, I think theoretically yes, but. Um, the, the, the style of football, let me say this in the most politically correct way. The style of football Egypt can play can make it hard for a team to come back with. Let, let's say that, right? As soon as they went 1-0 up, um, you know, you could kind of see, especially being in Egypt, right? Um, you could kind of see that, you know, it, it was quite, quite solid. Let's, let's say very similar to, to Algeria in that sense. Um you know, Senegal kept trying and trying and trying, but they just couldn't. And Egypt did that during Afghan to the very final. So it's going to be a very large uplift uh, battle, uh, uphill battle rather for for uh, Senegal. So, you know, there is. I would say that if they do go at them and break that trust, they can get back into it. But that's a big if. Um, Egypt have been in this position before, and Egypt has qualified before. And uh, I think that spirit is going to take them a long way. But, you know, having one AFCON is to really count away Senegal because they do have a, a very good team with, with a lot of wonderful talent. So for my Sadio Mane agenda, I'll say, yes, they can do it. But me as an objective fan, I'll say it's going to be extremely tough for them, even if they're at home. Okay, okay. Fair enough. Thank you. So um, lastly, let's look at Nigeria um, Ghana. So Nigeria... <laughs> we saw Nigeria have like a lot of drama happening behind the scenes. Nigeria, the Nigerian players jumping out of planes, them um, having to to <laughs> even um, sit down for a very one literally dropping out of planes. Oh, <laughs> With uh, them having to sit down for a press conference in that uncomfortable manner, and I think that it's what Ghana did was they actually make the entire African nation look bad because now the Europeans look at us like we're, we're a joke. But taking it back to the football, what yeah. kind of performance was that from both teams? Like, I don't understand what they were trying to do. It's like, I don't, it's like they thought you, that that was you, a friendly game because you, you, um, you know what it because, was, man. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. No, I was just, I was just saying, like, because if they actually know what is at stake, 
like the World Cup qualify and uh, World Cup a ticket to the World Cup, I think they mm. won't be playing as shambolic as they did. Yeah, I think you know what it was. The first ten minutes were very good actually. A lot of high tempo stuff. I was I was like, damn, like they actually went back and they they worked out what they needed to do. But then it just became oh no, like all over just all over the place. Um, I think it was a bigger especially with a draw. Probably a better performance or Ghanaian fans will find themselves a little bit happier um, than Nigerian fans because their team, I think, as a unit, played collectively better than they did during that AFCON, right? Based on the performance that they had, because it was it was quite shocking to, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but outside of that, I mean, like, there's a thing with Nigeria. There's always an assembling. It's like you assemble the Avengers and the Avengers don't know what to do, man. Like Osimhen had one of the worst games that he's ever had. Wearing a Nigerian jersey, right? I think I saw something where he had one pass, and that pass was in the start of the game, right? Um, second half, Ghana did start kind of aggressively, but Nigeria, you know, tried and and you know, Simon. I know he had that space, but like it wasn't inspiring. I think that attacking display that we saw with Egypt during the Afcon was something that I was looking forward to, but it's like both teams had a stalemate, and I don't know if it's just it's not even that they were trying to play conservatively; it just was. Terrible. Like, no offense, he was terrible to watch. So uh, I was very, I was very, very disappointed. I expected a lot more, given what this picture means, right, from the context of uh, history, but also from the context of society. Sort of made it bigger than than it turned out to be, and I think that's disappointing for us um, as, as as Africans and for you guys as Ghanaians and Nigerians. There's no bragging rights, so. Hopefully the next one is better. Um, being that it's going to be in Nigeria, we'll see if the Ghanaian players have to take parachutes from their planes, or you know maybe they'll make them bike to the stadium, or they'll be doing conferences on a plastic table. I don't know, maybe some sort of retaliation. But at least you know, um, it's still the last war. A lot of people be talking. That's what makes this picture so fun. No matter what that's, the result will be. I mean, someone, that's the bragging rights. So. Exactly. Someone will have to win. So whoever wins. I'm ready to be on Twitter tomorrow. Um, I'm working from home tomorrow, uh, and I'm very excited. So we'll, we'll see what ends up happening. On Osimhen Kolade, because I know you did point out that uh, he's not as good as everyone thinks. I think um, I'm starting to see what you are saying, although I didn't doubt your comment previously on Osimhen. But I'm, I'm now starting to see what you are saying. So, so Kola, guys, uh, yeah, for, like, like, if I get trouble, right? <laughs> Yo, Kolade <laughs> doesn't want to say anything. No comment. No, because I, I remember, I remembered when Kolade made the comments, and people were having a go at him, and um, I didn't doubt what he was saying. I was just surprised by the backlash he was getting because I didn't think he was saying something uh should I say malicious about the player. He was just highlighting one of his flaws, which I think every footballer usually has. And they made it seem like as if he was saying that oh the, the player is just downright rubbish. But you can start to see that the comment that Kalade made actually made sense that day. What I'm just going to say about Simon as any coach that any coach that gets him would have to work on him a lot. 
Mm-hmm. Not the finished, not the finished article that people say. So, let me ask you: Should Arsenal go for it? Yeah, I think if they are if there's a club that can go for it, Arsenal is one of them. Because of what I've seen, Arteta do with the young players, right? And Arteta is okay. the coach that knows how to communicate what exactly he wants from players. But okay, so if we go for him, it doesn't work out. I think the question is if, if we were to choose between him or um, Tammy. Hmm. So for question, for me, right, I'm going to pick um, I'm going to pick Victor Osimhen, right, because of one thing, because I think the two of them, the two of them basically have a lot of work to be done. But the thing about Victor Osimhen is that. He can create goals on his own. Like he has really? this dog mentality. He has this dog mentality where he can create chances on his own. Right? Like things things as crazy as running from the midfield alone, just because he has the pace, or his aerial ability, which is actually insane and has improved significantly this season. I think he has scored the highest amount of added goals in his area this season, right? So he, he has this this ability to generate goals on his own. Which is the reason why I'm going to take him over Tammy Abraham. But wow. one thing he needs to, one the major thing he needs to work on is his composure when he receives the ball. He needs to work on his composure. That first touch receiving the ball, he needs to work on it. Although it's not as bad as Bukaku, right? Yeah. But he needs his composure. You have to throw that in there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yo, yo, guys. <laughs> Yo, yo, guys. Uh, because because of time, uh, I think I think we'll, we'll be wrapping up now in next one minute. But we'll come back to the half content because I need you guys' prediction just before we close this episode. But I just want to quickly highlight something um, in the international scene as well. We saw Italy selling their tickets to possibly Canada. You know, they sold their tickets to Canada. They got knocked out by North Macedonia, who Hurricane normally start parts again. But um, going back to Italy, you have to have him there. Sorry, sorry, Lennon. Sorry, Lennon. Concerning this Afcon, concerning Afcon, right? It thought came to my head, right? And I was trying to understand why are African countries trying to sell match day tickets, right? Knowing the level of poverty, right? And um, the need to have fans in the stadium for their qualifiers. I don't understand this, right? I just think Wait, that it's something mean, that you can just do. They have to sell it, right? Do you think it should be free? So, yeah, so for example, now Nigeria has a very important game against Ghana, right? That's a very important game. They have a 60,000 capacity stadium. They took it to a city that is not very populated in the same national capital, right? And they're trying to sell the ticket. This relates to a case where we have like a 15,000 in the stadium, right? Or like, if you look at the other leg in Kumasi, the stadium was absolutely full, right? And the noise was deafening for the player. The atmosphere was very, very, was very, very, it's, it was like a 12th man, almost like an athlete scenario. But when we are trying to sell the stadium and there's a big possibility, they are trying to sell my day ticket, and there's a big possibility that the, the, the stadium will not be full, right? So I'm trying to understand the thinking behind it. I understand the football club that is a profit-oriented kind of thing, right? But in a nation, it's not about profit. The only reason why you should be selling match day tickets is if you are trying to, you have too much people coming to the stadium and you are trying to restrict it. But if you don't have enough people, I don't know why you are trying to sell it. Just my 
too simple. That's the entire scenario is what is happening. Yeah, I see. I see what you're saying. Like it, it makes sense, but like the way I see it is, at the end of the day, this thing should be subsidized so that the um, the average man can be able to afford it because we all know how Africa Africa is like. It's not everybody is not affluent and wealthy, so they need to make it subsidized enough that even if they want to see some proceeds from it, they need they need it to be as minimal as possible so that people can actually go for those dreams. So um. So for the listeners, in the next episode, we'll be talking about, like, like I always say, the talking points from this Tuesday to next Tuesday. And we'll basically be breaking down some related team and seeing the Italian team and seeing what the actual problems are in that team. And, um, Too um, much um, faster than that, don't worry. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, and, and um, like I always say, please do drop, um, subscribe and, you know, Share the podcast to a friend if you do enjoy it, and drop a review as well. And the and the social media handles of our host and our um, pe- my fellow speakers will be linked in the description. So please do follow them if you enjoy their takes because they have a lot of great, great content going on for them on their various social media platforms. So before we close off, guys, I will quickly, we just quickly go around the room and ask everyone. Of their own prediction, but this is the way the question is. So I will name six teams, and you will tell me who we're going to see in the World Cup. So we have Senegal versus Egypt, we have um, Cameroon versus Algeria, and we have Nigeria and Ghana. So I need three names from you, Arun. So who is going next? To, who is going to next? Arun? Sorry, you're Okay, okay. So 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 we have. Cameroon versus Algeria. We have Egypt versus um, Senegal. We have um, Nigeria versus Ghana. Ghana. So, who are you expecting to see in the World Don't Cup? Don't forget Mali and Tunisia, buddy. Okay, Mali and Tunisia as well. And like I'm, and I, I, I just, I just, I just to call the main, the major teams. But I, I think those ones like Morocco. I think. <laughs> no shades, no shades. I know they will call for me. I know they will call for me. But, but you know. Like I don't, I don't want to, you know, multi-tax Arun. So Arun, which, which of the names do you expect to see in the World Cup? Um, Senegal, Egypt. Um, I think Senegal are going to go through. Maybe like a one-nil. Um, so I think they have enough to go through in the end. Uh, Nigeria, Ghana. I think Nigeria are going to go through as well. Uh, with the Cameroon game, I think Algeria are going to pull through eventually. Uh, Morocco and Tunisia. That's my that's my predictions for those teams. Okay, okay, thank you. Thank you, Arun. Um, thank you. Moving on, moving on, Day. so what, what's your take? Who, who are the teams that will go through? Day there. Okay, I think Day. we've lost Day. Billy, go ahead. I know, Billy, you want to talk about each and every one of them that will qualify. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> I, think, I think it'll probably be, um, I think it'll probably be Ghana and then Egypt and Algeria. No, that answer, there's clearly an agenda in that answer. No, like, I don't no, understand. No, no. <laughs> okay, don't worry. We'll see how uh, Jodayo uh, hopefully doesn't send the ball to the calf parks of Abuja. So, uh, <laughs> so, Hunter, let's hear from you. Who are the teams you, you expect to see in the World Cup? Um, I think uh, Egypt might actually go through, sadly. 
um, or the vlog sorry um, the true jollof boys come on they're definitely going through Ghana will just boil your eggs and just keep it that way no shades um, I have a feeling Cameroon might actually go through as opposed to Algeria I think they might have to wake up and uh, turn that fixture around um, but I'm rooting for Cameroon in this uh, in that game um, oof, I think Tunisia is definitely going to go through as opposed to Mali and um, I think Congo might actually go through as opposed to Morocco but that was, those are my predictions Mm, Hunter Green um, left entirely. So um, that's, that's been it from, from us. Um, this has been Tuesday Talking Point. Hopefully you enjoyed it. From myself and my fellow speaker, it's goodbye from you.